Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Ron Adner is a highly respected and recognized professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Dr. Adner's award-winning research introduces a new perspective on the relationship between firms, customers, and the broader innovation ecosystems in which they interact to create value. In his book, The Wide Lens, What Successful Innovators See That Others Miss, which by the way is an excellent book, I highly recommend it, it has been heralded as a path-breaking guide to successful innovation in an interdependent world. Among other honors, it was named a best business book of the year by strategy and business. So let's jump in to the conversation and learn more about Ron and his insights on strategy, growth, and innovation. So whenever I talk to successful people, I'd like to understand how they got to where they are today and really understand like their childhood, like what kind of kid they were and if they just knew from a young age what they wanted to do exactly and if their life turned out that way. So I want to hear from you, Ron, what was your upbringing like? And, and was there this pivotal moment in your life where you're like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do? Or has your path been a little bit more messy? I would characterize my, my path as a combination of messy and clueless to the point where so clueless that you don't realize what a mess it is until afterwards you look back and like, oh my God, how did I end up here? The one thing that was always true, so I've always been interested in like the broad idea of innovation, right? Like just stuff happening with technology. And that was interesting to me. And I went to college, I studied engineering, knowing that I was interested less in the technical part of engineering. It was harder to understand the technology. So do the hard mathy type stuff early and then move on to organizations. I guess that was kind of an early idea that I had. But in college, I was going to be a doctor. I was going to do medical devices. I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to look at patents. I was going to do this. I was going to do that. I ended up not knowing what I wanted to do. So I stayed on for a graduate degree. I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, so, you know, I, I had some you know work experience here and there. And I stumbled into the idea of a PhD program, not in economics, but at a business school. And even there, I didn't quite know if I would stick with it. It's a different kind of world. And it was only, you know what, it was only like four years after I had already been a professor at INSEAD, pretty high reputation school and things were going well, that I, I stopped going through my regular summer exercise of thinking about, well, if this doesn't work out, what else could I do? It took a while to settle in, but now 
was like, I, I, I couldn't imagine a better balance of interests given my personal taste. My teaching, my research, my engagement with companies are all around the same theme of innovation and the interaction of technologies and organizations. And that just kind of emerged as the right place for me to be. And I feel very fortunate to be able to look at things from these perspectives. And you did your PhD at Wharton. That, that's when you were at Wharton during that time, right? Studying. Right. What, what kind of student were you? Were you like a nerdy student who is really hitting the books hard? Or were you just exploring life at that time and, and trying to think of like, okay, what path do I want to go down? How do I narrow my focus? Where were you at that time in life? I was highly explorative. I mean, so my training was in engineering. So moving to a business school was a very different kind of environment, right? Both in terms of what you're trying to do as a student, the kind of things you're reading, the kinds of projects you're trying to do were very different. And, you know, I would say as in coursework, I was fine, but it was really kind of in beginning to push into the research that you do for a dissertation that I think I started finding my, my, my footing in, in when you're finally given permission to look in places that others have not yet. Yeah, that makes sense. And this innovation, this idea of innovation, a lot of people throw around different terms and definitions of innovation, right? So I'd love to hear what do you define innovation as and why are you so passionate about innovation? When I think about innovation, I think about it relatively broadly in the sense of it's something that is new to you, right? Which is it doesn't, sometimes innovation is something brand new to the world, a personal hovercraft. And from a market perspective, that leads to all kinds of challenges you need to think through. Of course, it turns out that if you're an organization and you're just trying to do something that somebody else has done for the last 10 years, that requires a lot of internal innovation as well. A lot of my focus in the last five years or so has been about how do you couple an innovation perspective of what's required to succeed in the outside world with the internal transformation that's required inside the company, right? And so, you know, innovation is really just a, it's a lens on change. And I think the, the trap that we tend to fall into is thinking about it just from a product perspective or a service perspective, whereas those are important subcategories. Thinking about it with the marriage of what does it mean from an organizational perspective really is, is the key to unlocking not just vision, but actually effectiveness. Like from an operating model standpoint, is that what you're saying? Like structure, innovation, organizational design, is that what you're referring so to? It's organizational design. It's really digging into the, not just the incentives, but the perspectives of different parties, right? You know, so a lot of my work around this heading of, of ecosystems is how do you think about aligning other partners outside of your firms? But it turns out that there's a lot of that same logic that applies and needs to be applied inside the firm. And so a focus on just an end market or product development doesn't take that entire set of dependencies into consideration. You no, know, it's a formula for, for ineffectiveness and frustration. And so what you need is a, you know, a perspective and a method to go in and really see those bumps before you hit them. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. You know, people hear about innovation, right? They know they need to be innovative. They know they need to transform. They know they need to be better. What holds organizations back from innovating and transforming and doing what they need to do in order to remain competitive and to remain attractive to their customers and to be able to deliver great products and services? I'll tell you what I think doesn't do it, right? So I think there's a lot of misattribution to the notion of, oh, they're just not thinking creatively enough or they're not thinking aggressively enough, right? We're, we're short of ideas and we need our people to, to think outside the box and be more creative. So I, I hear that a lot, right? And that's certainly what's presented in the popular conversation, 
But there are very few companies today that if you go into them, people have no idea about where to spend money, right? I mean, it's, you know, the, the litmus test is, okay, you have requests for funding for development and you have a budget for development, which, which is the direction of imbalance, right? I have yet to meet a company that says we have so much cash and no ideas, right? Instead, we're drowning in ideas. We don't have enough cash. And so I think the heart of the problem is, one, we don't know how to prioritize those ideas. And because of that, we don't know how to make big bets, right? So I don't think the, the shortfall is in visions of the future. The shortfall is in one, how do you get there, right? The plan. But two, it's how do you gain the confidence to make the commitments that are required to really follow that plan in a meaningful way? You know, so you do a lot of work in the construction industry, yep. right? There's no shortage of architectural visions, right? And there's no shortage of blueprints. Right. The issue is how do you pull together that whole project, which is more than just financing, to make it go? You know, there's actually, there, there are wonderful analogies between the way I think about ecosystems and the way, you know, one thinks about construction. You need a lot of confidence in order to make a construction project. Right. You need you yep. need not just a lot of vision, but you need to be willing to take a particular set of risks. They vary over time. And I think, you know, the construction industry is built around that kind of model. I think more and more as you're looking at innovations that are trying to align multiple parties, to multiple pieces, that's the kind of logic that we need to see. And I don't think that that's the kind of logic that tends to be uh, the go to logic within companies. And I think so for me, that's a key part of the challenge. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Yeah. And, and you talk about this idea of collaborative innovation in your book, and I want to get into this and, and I, I want to explore more this idea of like probabilities and how you break down the probabilities and, and how we could look at that to really analyze what payoffs we want and returns on capital and so on and so forth. But before we get into that discussion, tell me more about the genesis behind the wide lens. Like what led you to write the book and what types of uh, benefits have you received from that being out there in the market so far? The genesis of Wide Lens was actually needing to try to understand, this is back in like 1999, right? So I finished my PhD in 1998. I started teaching at INSEAD, taught a class on innovation strategy, and I needed to figure out for myself, why is it that people are so excited about what's happening? And I'm excited about what's happening. This is pre-tech bubble. And yet at the same time, my sense is things are not going to work out. What that led to was the beginning of a structure that says you can't just look at the core innovation that people are touting. You have to think about what else needs to come about around it in order to enable its promise to really be fulfilled. That's the core insight that became this book, The Wide Lens, where I was able to put more structure around that and say, look, we all are concerned about execution. How do we think about strategy beyond execution? How do we think about these ideas of co-innovation, which is you're going to do something new. Does anyone else need to do something new for your innovation to matter? How do we think about ideas around what I call your adoption chain? 
which is you need to satisfy your end customer, but who else needs to be satisfied not for you to deliver your product? Right? That's your critical path. That's your distribution chain. We all know how to think about that, but who else needs to buy in for you to deliver your value proposition? Sure. which is who are the critical partners that are not on your critical path, right? And that was kind of the beginning of laying out an actual methodology and a structure for looking at an innovation possibility and building a holistic wide lens strategy. You talk about the Kindle in your book and, you know, Amazon's known for being customer centric and for executing, right? They're very successful at executing. So was it just a matter of them being successful and having that capability of executing well on their strategy? Because there's other readers out there. Why did Kindle succeed when all these other readers, which were better, some of them had better technology and better like interfaces. Why did they not become so successful? Yeah, that's, it's a great example to bring up, right? Because you know, so Sony really dominated that market. They invented that market for e-readers. And, you know, you and I are both old enough to remember when Sony was the most important innovation company in the world. Yep. Right. They brought about the best products. They had the best design, the best interface, right? Steve Jobs' dream was that Apple would be more like Sony, right? That's how spectacular they were. And so to look at Amazon's success in e-readers and think that it's because they had customer insight that they knew to listen to the customer and so kind of imply that Sony didn't know to listen to the customer and that's why they lost, right? It just has no credibility on the face of it, right? Sure. You work with companies. Do you know any company that doesn't say we obsess over our customers? Right. They all obsess over their customer, right? So it's not like that's a secret that nobody knows. Now, there's more or less insight, but I think the thing that sets Amazon apart is one, the sacrifices that they're willing to make, the trade-offs they're willing to make, right? That's somewhat differentiated. But for me, the even bigger part is the way in which they think about partners and partner alignment really is unique, right? So Sony had a better reader, they had a better interface, a better everything, but if you looked at the ways Amazon launched the Kindle was it was designed not just to make the reader happier, but it was designed specifically with publishers in mind, right? So Amazon's insight was an e-reader without e-books doesn't do much. So it's not just that I need to be aware of publishers. I need to differentiate myself vis-a-vis these critical partners. And so the way Amazon win was they satisfied the publishers enough that they were able to get you know, the latest bestsellers as eBooks. Whereas Sony, in trying to satisfy end users by having a more open platform and letting you share and do all the sorts of things that customer feedback told them end users would want, ended up with a product that was less, more attractive to end users, but less attractive to partners. And so kind of the, the mantra on this is that the best product will always lose to a good solution. Sure. Right. Sony had a great product, but a bad solution. And so they had actually nothing. And so, you know, as you say, it's, it's a story laid out in my book. I mean, it's a 16 year journey towards a destination that was snatched from them. Sure. But it wasn't because they didn't know to listen to the customer. It's more about that ecosystem that you're talking about. So tie that into your thought about probabilities and how can companies look at all these probabilities associated with all the, the collaborators in this ecosystem to make better decisions? So, you know, I'll frame this carefully right? Because speaking to, a, to an ex-CFO who's focused on control and discipline, the risk that comes with seeing this bigger picture is that you see more risk and suddenly everything feels more dangerous, right? So the wrong reaction to what I'm talking about is to say, oh, the world is more dangerous, we should do less, right? In fact, looking at the bigger picture, it doesn't create danger, it just alerts you, here are the dangers, so now you can build a plan, so you should actually march forward with greater confidence. 
But the notion of, of probabilities comes to kind of a bias that we have, which is if there's a sense that as we're enriching a value proposition, which usually means adding more partners, the more partners, the better. The more of them buy in, the better, the more confidence we have. But if these are critical partners, what it means is that anybody who doesn't show up ruins it for everybody else, right? And so this goes back to, you know, your old grade school notions of probabilities and flipping coins, right? That if you have a 50-50 shot of succeeding with your effort, that's a 50-50 shot. But if you and I are collaborating and I'm providing a, a piece of the puzzle and I've got a 50% chance and you're providing a piece of the puzzle, and you've got a 50% chance. And we're trying to assess just how likely our success is. We can't just say, well, we're working together. It's going to be amazing. Um, we need to recognize, well, if you've got a 50-50 chance and I've got a separate independent 50-50 chance, likelihood that we both show up is 25%, sure. right? So even as we're enhancing the potential upside, we're affecting the likelihood of joint success, which doesn't mean we shouldn't move forward. It just says we want to be very careful and aware of the risks that we're actually bearing. And that goes back to your previous point when you said, you know, really looking at the strategy, right? And understanding the payoff, the size of the prize, right? Because we have all these priorities within the organization and really thinking strategically about which priorities we should pursue to get the biggest payoff. Is that what you're referring to? It's about the size of the prize. It's about the timing of the prize. And in this world where we can expect that things won't always work out, it's really how do you think about the portfolio of bets that you want to make, right? Because I think a lot of innovation organization ends up failing, not because it was a bad idea, but because it couldn't be supported sufficiently for success. Right now, part of that is just inefficiency because people didn't think through what the challenge was going to be. But the other part is, well, you didn't budget for what's natural uncertainty, right? I mean, again, if I think about the construction context, mm -hmm. you know, if you're pricing out a building and you're not giving yourself an extra three months for permitting problems, you're not going to build that building. Sure. So, so again, it's a matter of nobody's stopping you from starting and no one's demanding that you work your logic all the way to the end. But that's what success actually requires. It's not just that you have a great beginning. It's that you have the wherewithal to get to the end. Exactly. And, and to your point about ecosystems, I mean, I, I did a lot of work in utility scale solar. And as the solar industry is evolving, you know, you, you can't just have, you know, battery powered cars that are powered by the sun, right? Unless you have the charging station and unless you have the canopies in the parking lots with, with solar panels on top and you have everything combined together in this ecosystem, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't right. matter how innovative your product is if you don't have that co-collaboration within that ecosystem. Yeah, right. That's critical. And then the thing that makes it even more, you want to call it interesting, challenging, frustrating, is that there are some contexts where you're just waiting for the pieces to come together. But there are other contexts, and solar is a great example, where as you're waiting, things are happening, right? I mean, the solar yep. cells that you put on three years ago compared to the solar cells that you could be purchasing today, right? It's a pretty big difference. Sure. If you didn't realize you're going to have a three-year wait, you bought your solar cells three years early, you're opening your site and you're already, you know, technologically behind. So it creates this question of how do you time commitments, which, you know, in some ways makes everything sound more complicated. On the other hand, complicated settings are where the prizes can be very big, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the reward for getting things right rises exponentially with the difficulty of the question. And I think the, you know, you look around today, the sorts of stuff that is really exciting, right? Electrification alternative energy, right? And again, I'm just thinking about like within the context of the construction industry, autonomy, robotics, all these things 
are their potential for unleashing value is enormous. And at the same time, the number of moving pieces that you want to have incorporated into your strategy has grown as well. Which makes it much more complex. Well, let me ask you this because strategies definitely evolved since Michael Porter wrote competitive strategy back in the day. And there's so many more frameworks. There's so many more enlightened professionals that are out there writing books like yourself. And, and strategy is being more incorporated into these MBA programs and, and other programs out there. Are leaders becoming more strategic or what's your thought on the evolution of strategy? That's a good question. So the easier question would be, do leaders need to become more strategic? Mm-hmm. The answer to that is an easy yes. To the question of are leaders becoming more strategic? I think the, I mean, in some ways, kind of the, the, the root of your, of your question is, as we have more and more ideas around strategy, being strategic means not just doing five forces the way Porter taught you. It's understanding which strategies apply where and for whom. Sure. Actually, it's kind of a, one of the themes in this book I'm finishing up right now, which uh, everybody should look for in October. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, it's called, called Winning the Right Game. And the, the gist of it is that the traditional strategy world, the focus was on competition inside an industry. And that was very difficult, but at the same time, at least it was clear because you knew who your competitor was. Hey, GM, Ford, and Toyota, they were all trying to sell cars. Today, they're thinking not just about each other, but these other animals that are coming into the forest, selling mobility solutions, right? Selling miles, selling there's, you know, we've, we've shifted to this notion of a mobility ecosystem. And if all you're thinking about is the car industry, you're in trouble, right? Construction, great example. We have so many different companies coming into this space where the old frameworks about how to think about head-to-head competition no longer apply. You still have those direct rivals, but you have these other players coming in with somewhat different value propositions. They don't look like traditional diversifiers. They're not just, you know, I'm a bank and now I've got this new arm in construction. They're, They're bringing different capabilities in, and that requires a different kind of strategy both to understand, but it also means that just replicating what you're seeing is less and less likely to give you success, Sure, right? You need to understand how you're going to position yourself in the ecosystem. So the question was, you know, do le- are leaders becoming more strategic? They may be trying to become more strategic. Their big risk is that they're going to be signing on to inappropriate strategies for what their context is evolving into. Yeah. I mean, cause to your point, I mean, traditional strategy, like you mentioned is, you know, get big, dominate in the marketplace, economies of scale, you know, it's all about predicting the future type of thing. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's so much more nuanced and dynamic than that. And in business school, it's interesting because it's, it's so easy to teach, you know, a traditional strategy. Here's a case study. Now we're going to build an analysis around it. You can predict the future, build out this financial model, whatever it is. But to your point, it's so much more nuanced. So are leaders, are they more confused today because there's so many voices out there? And how do they know which strategy is the right approach to pursue? And, and I'm not talking about which strategy, but more which strategy framework is the right one. I mean, in some ways, I think that's the litmus test that you can apply, right? When somebody's telling you about a new strategy is, are they giving you clarity, not just about the strategy, but the if then of what's the contingency that it applies to, right? I mean, so in today's world, there's less and less of this thing called a good strategy, right? All there is, is a good strategy for you, right? You could be pursuing a strategy that is perfect for you, that if I pursued, it would be a disaster, 
right? And and as our goals have have extended beyond just industries, right? Suddenly, as you're thinking about what's the right strategy for you, it has to incorporate who are the partners that you can deploy and who are the partners that you can't. Sure. And so I think the litmus test really for, you know, as you're, you're thinking about what strategies, what strategy philosophies to follow, it's what's the extent to which they are speaking to the richness of your context. Yeah. I love how you said the strategy for you, because you're right. It, it has to be like tailored to your organization. I mean, the, the same strategy that you know I think about in Denver, where I live, American Furniture Warehouse is the big furniture provider out here. Uh, Jake Jabs, he's the owner. He has these commercials with like tigers and stuff, and he sells a ton of furniture. And then Ikea came to town and there was like this panic in, in the marketplace or things in the newspaper talking about, oh, is American furniture going to go out of business and what, what are they going to do? But it, it's a totally different strategy. If, if American Furniture Warehouse pursued the exact same strategy as Ikea, they'd probably go bust, right? I mean, you'd have to change your whole supply chain, your design, you know, your warehouse and warehouse distribution, the, the whole floor plan of your showroom. I mean, it would be a disaster. So I like how you mentioned strategy has to be specific to your organization. Yeah, I think you're, you know, you're, you're making exactly the right point, which is, you know, we used to talk about differentiation, right? Oh, you want to be a differentiated player. And what that meant was you want to be better. And in a simpler world, you kind of knew what better meant, more of something. Whereas, you know, this example that you're giving is exactly right in the sense that IKEA differentiating compared to American Furniture Warehouse differentiating, they're going to look more and more different as they differentiate rather than one trying to catch up to the other. That's why strategy is becoming more important. Actually, you know, if you ask me, I actually, I think people will need to confront the fact that most of the strategies and the strategic training that we've had is actually not entirely appropriate to the challenges that we're facing now, let alone the ones ahead. So what would you say to an executive who would respond, hey, look, Ron, we've been doing the same strategy framework for the last 10 years. It works out great. I don't want to confuse my leadership team. We're just going to keep going forward with this model. Would you have concerns for them? Like what advice would you give? Is it, is it important to keep your, your eyes open? And Well, look, my prior is always going to be respectful, which is maybe you're right. Okay, maybe you happen to be in a part of the world where nothing material is changing, where no one else is really trying to go after your prize in a new way. Maybe, okay, maybe you have a level of stability that doesn't seem to characterize so much of the rest of the world and you're, you're in a lucky place. However, I would be concerned that since that seems to characterize so little of the world, right? Maybe you want to double check, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and look ahead. And I think, you know, part of it is, I mean, look, we're living through COVID right now, right? So there's both kind of industry-based changes and rivalries. And at the same time, we have these, you know, external shocks that are arriving and have been arriving like every couple of years, not, you know, maybe quite as in your face as COVID, but the kinds of changes that are put into place through these external forces, Right. You want to tell me that the whole notion of convenience, the whole notion of location, the whole notion of communication, the whole notion of trust, as all these things are being overturned, you just want to stick to your plan. Again, I'm going to be respectful and say, okay, I just want to make sure you understand what you're committing to. That seems like the riskier thing. Sure. When it comes to strategy and being more strategic, what if a leader is listening to this podcast and they're sitting here thinking, I really need to up my strategic intelligence. How do they even start? Like, do you read a book? Do you take a class? Do you bring in some professionals? Like, how would you even begin that journey of being more strategic? Well, I mean, if you're asking 
you know, me, right? Ron Adner, my first answer is that's why I wrote the book and that's why I'm writing this new one. It's like my my attempt at, at giving my view of what's required for thinking through this. By the way, for those listening, if you go to ronadner.com, the first chapter of The Wide Lens is posted there. Read, share, whatever you want, just as a way of at least getting some clarity on the kinds of questions that you want, you want to be asking. You know, you asked about these modes. Do you read a book? Do you take a course? Do you bring somebody in? The answer is all three. But I would say that if you're asking those questions, at least you're, you're, you're beginning to engage in a more active way, right? You're recognizing that something is changing. You know, in some ways, the best possible situation to be in is saying, you know what? I could keep going with my current strategy. What that means is you're not facing a crisis. It's when you're not facing a crisis, that's the best time to think about how to position for the future. Sure. Right? By the time someone's going to come to you and say, Steve, oh my God, you know, my house is on fire. What should I do? Right? That's a little late to, you know... <laughs> The advice of, oh, you should get some fire extinguishers, less <laughs> helpful. Too late. Yeah, exactly. So what, what about for those who say, you know what, Ron, strategy is just a bunch of hocus pocus, you know, marketing garbage. And yeah, we do this exercise for our stakeholders. What, what's your response to that? My response is that garbage is garbage. So you just need to be more selective. Okay. That is true of strategy. That is true of financial analysis. That is true of medical advice. That is true of everything we know. So you want to be a, a smart, judicious consumer and user of anything, particularly things that impact more than you, right? I mean, the, the challenge with strategy is if you take it seriously, it impacts the entire organization in a very powerful way. So I would say you want to be very careful about how you're building your strategy, who you're getting advice on your strategy from. But the notion of, oh, this thing is not important, I think is, uh, I think it's, it's, you know, it's not just naive, it's dangerously naive because what's your alternative? Yeah. The alternative is just winging it, I guess. You're just, just winging relying, it. Exactly. Relying on execution, right? Which is very scary if you're just doing that. So well, it's very scary. And, and it's, and when the environment changes, it's extra painful because you've been doing all this hard work and it's not paying off anymore. Right? I mean, the, the worst than failing is working really, really, really hard and then failing. Sure. Right. And again, if you can understand your environment changing, even if you can't figure out how to succeed, at least you can figure out how to reduce the pain of failure. The real thing, of course, is even if you can't figure out how to succeed, you figure out right now how to build some moats around yourself to give you more time to figure out how to succeed. Right. But what you can't do is just sit there you know, ignoring the fact that the tide is coming in and then one day waking up and saying, well, my God, the, the floor is wet. What do I do? Yeah, exactly. And to your point, you know, we'll come into companies and we'll help them with turnarounds and transformations. And sometimes they're in a liquidity crisis, which is, you know, the bottom of the, the row here, but really it's the strategic crisis leads to a profit crisis, leads to a liquidity crisis. And then it's a viability crisis, whether or not you're going to be in business. And I really like that point. Trying to plan before a strategic crisis is really key because otherwise you get there or you get to a profit crisis or liquidity crisis, that's really tough to fix and remedy. And, and the medicine is very bitter. So let's talk about this, Ron. You know, you've done a lot of great things in your career. You got this new book coming out in October. You're teaching at Tuck and you have the opportunity to interact with some of the brightest, smartest, innovative kids out there. And you have your, your consulting firm. What are you most excited about when you think about your next 10 years in life? What, what gets you really amped up? You know, something I feel like really fortunate about, and this really was the transition that came when Wide Lens came out, is being able to participate in conversations and shaping activities in a way that that really matters, right? So, you know, for me, that was kind of a, 
a, a very interesting and somewhat unexpected transition, right? From being, you know, a professor doing research, trying to get smart about theoretical issues to be able to more directly impact, not just the way people are, are, are solving old problems, but the way they're understanding new problems. And that's a very, you know, that's a very rare privilege because not only does it mean that you're, you're getting to be exposed to really interesting things, but it also creates an opportunity, you know, quite frankly, a, an obligation as well, because once people start listening to you, there are consequences to what you say. Sure. Right. And so this, again, is why I think strategy taking strategy is so important because a good strategy can do so much good, but a bad strategy can do so much harm. Sure. Right. And that harm is, you know, visited. You know, I don't really care about the shareholders so much as, you know, the organization, right? The people, the employees, the families affected when things go wrong. Right. So if we can kind of reason through, if we can see, dig, whatever it is to see more about this bigger picture and avoid errors, that really is, you know, enormous impact. You know, that's a, a big part of what gets me excited. Yeah. And just be able to impact and influence organizations and their outcomes has got to be super rewarding. You know, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. You know, I, the, when I first heard you speak on the wide lens, I was really excited because I was like, yes, this is like such a, a great idea. It's such a powerful idea. This, this idea of like ecosystems and the collaboration that must occur to be successful. And it's just, it's such a fresh way to look at strategy. So I'm really excited for your book that's coming out in October and uh, I highly recommend you guys checking out Ron Adder's work because it's absolutely amazing. So best of luck to you. I know you're, you're making a big influence out there in the world. Your thought leadership is definitely appreciated and just your influence on strategy is remarkable. So thank you so much for your time. And, oh, you're very uh, kind, Steve. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here. And it was great to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. Same. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.